Hey, 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 how's it going out there, my mushroom lovers? Oliver Carlin here, and I'm the Mushroom Man. I'm about to jump into a podcast with Andrew Reed, who is a founder and owner at Mossy Creek Mushrooms. Locally, Mossy Creek Mushrooms is really known as a mushroom farm. They're a major mushroom farm that's producing over almost 4,000 pounds of mushrooms a month to around 20 different restaurants and several different farmers markets. Now, internationally, and they're, they're known a little bit differently. They're known as an educator because they have a, an awesome YouTube channel with amazing content and they've helped over a million people learn about how to be a mushroom farmer straight on their channel. But a lot of things, some things people don't know is they're actually into genetics and creating liquid culture and they're moving heavily into that field. And I love his passion that he has about it and the same passion that we have in the happy mushroom space with cloning mushrooms and creating new strains. He's doing that in the gourmet space. It's incredible. So let's jump into the, um, let's jump in now and let's talk to Andrew and let's see what he's got going on. So the big question is this, with over 10,000 different species of mushrooms, how do people that want to benefit from their various medicinal properties accurately identify them in the wild, grow them at home, or make them taste delicious without having to read confusing medical reports and possibly eating a poisonous look-alike by mistake? That's the question, and this podcast will give you the answer. My name is Oliver Carlin, and welcome to Curative Mushroom. All right, we're live. All right, Andrew Reed, thanks so much for joining me today. How you doing? I'm doing excellent, man. How are you doing? Doing great, great. Um, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast today. I, you know, <laughs> you've been doing this a lot longer than me. And I remember when I first got into learning about a lot of the stuff that we do today in our company and stuff, I, you know, I was watching your channel because mm. you had such an amazing YouTube channel, right? Like the content was incredible. Oh, thank you. And, um, <laughs> but you know, you could tell you were doing it. Like this was, <laughs> this wasn't like a lot of other people that were writing stuff, but you were actually in this, doing this every day. And so, um, but yeah, you know, for those of you who don't know, you know, about a lot about you, you know, you're the, are you the founder of Mossy Creek Mushrooms or the owner or? Yeah, my, my wife and I are the founders of it. Um, we have four owners total. Um, ben Erickson, who also owns Man of War that makes the Thor bagger. Um, he owns a percentage of it. And then we have a silent partner as well. But it was my wife and I that started it. Um, just kind of on a wing and a prayer. So. Well, how did, how did it all get started? Like, was it, it looked like, was it around eight years ago or so? Like how far back does it go? Uh, well, so the real beginnings, I guess, would be around 2008. Um, I had, you know, we had the cri the housing crisis and all that kind of stuff, the, um, the financial crisis. So mm -hmm. I ended up just at that period, just bouncing from job to job to job and, started getting really interested in growing food at home because that was the cheapest way to get really good quality food. So mm. um, the next thing you know, I'm reading about uh, people growing mushrooms and I stumbled upon, uh, I get across Paul Stamets's, um six ways mushrooms can help save the world and mm. was kind of taken by that spent, you know, what few pennies I could scrape together to buy mycelium running fell in love with the whole idea of mushrooms until it just kind of we I even started going to school for biology um, 
and then dropped out of school because eventually I was just growing mushrooms at home and it didn't make sense to keep racking up student loans when I was making money selling mushrooms on the side. So, and, and then I think we applied for our business license 2013 and that's whenever it became like a real, a real phenomenon thing. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. And uh, what'd you do before you, you were, um, you found out about mushrooms and growing them and stuff. I did a lot of stuff uh, right before I went um, into growing mushrooms for real. Like the, the, at the time that Samantha said, quit your job and go do this full time. Um, I was working as a cake decorator <laughs> at a, a cake factory here in town. And uh, so nothing even closely related to it. I just <laughs> was really good at making, you know, sick rosebuds on those cakes. So <laughs> that's pretty much it. Um, I, Got transferred to a line where uh, the carrot cake line, and that's where I found out I'm allergic to walnuts, and they wouldn't move. Uh, they wouldn't move me. And Samantha said, "You know what? Screw this. Um, you're making more than enough money. If if you want to take the kids out of daycare, be a stay at home dad, and do the mushrooms at the same time, then she's like, I fully support you on do doing that. So, awesome. That's yeah. That's where uh, that's where it became my full time job. And then a couple of years later, we just Samantha kept working. 70 80 hour weeks every bit of money i made from the mushrooms i just poured back into the mushrooms until basically samantha could stop working and pay all of our bills a year in advance and then we just launched nice. into it nice nice what what was she, what was she doing she was also uh working at the cake factory oh okay yeah we worked we worked together there so gotcha, we, gotcha. weirdly enough we were they kept trying to separate us and we just kept going, Hey, can we please just continue to work together? And they were like, you want to work with your spouse? Like nobody wants to work with their spouse. And we were like, no, we, we, why would I want to be married to someone I don't want to spend time with? So, you know, and, I love and, that answer. yeah, so we, and, and eventually it became where it's the mushroom thing. Now we get to spend all our time together. So hell yeah. Hell yeah. I'm the same way. I work with my wife. Yeah, and man. I mean, it's a, it's a blessing. Yeah, it's awesome to be able to do that. Oh yeah. Well, cool, man. And then, so you just wh where did you start? Like um, when you got into it, did you start with like a certain mushroom, and then build from there, or how did it all? Yeah, yeah. Going? So I'm weird in that I came in at that generation where it was really strange for me to be coming in at it from the gourmet side. I had never had any interest in psilocybin and every other guy i knew was coming at it going gourmet after having initially grown like psilocybin and stuff so i just oh. immediately launched in to oysters oysters were i don't know they still you know hold a, an immense amount of fascination to me now like oysters are just i feel like we've done so little with them that we could be doing um mm. and that just i don't know the oysters really took off for me now i've got a a, a big obsession with herisium i mean you could technically say I've probably got an obsession with every type at this point, but <laughs> no, I seen your one video about Herisium and like you had all these different varieties. I was like, whoa, I'm like, you had so much excitement. It was like the people in the, you know, the other mushroom world, right. Where they're like, you know, Cabensis, they got hundreds of varieties, but yeah. they're excited about them. But I seen the same excitement from you coming from Herisium. And I was like, wow, that is so cool. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it blows my mind. I mean, like that's that's actually where I got a lot of my ideas to start really, uh, well, pheno hunting, um, phenotype hunting, like looking for for new body types and styles and weights and speeds and you know, 
behaviors out of the the oyster mushrooms. And so that's when I started my breeding program, which was literally just, I wasn't trying to breed the bigger oyster, the better oyster, the batter oyster. I was just trying to see what is actually there. You know, that's when we come across like the big fat stemmed oysters and we have the, the skinny stemmed oysters and, you know, about all kinds of other stuff. And then, you know, lo and behold, my excitement, like you were talking about just now for, oh crap, that's not even been touched for heresiums either. Like oysters had been, you know, explored at least a little bit by a lot of people. Um, Heresiums have hardly been touched. Um, And part of that's like, you know, getting consistent, good quality spore prints was a problem. Heresiums have a lot of biological behaviors where they actually want to spend most of their life as a half organism rather than a full organism, like in the wild. And we as growers tend to, just force it into a full organism um, and just keep it that way. You know, just what, what, does that, what does that mean? Like a full organism versus like a non-full organism? Well, so <laughs> in mushrooms, they, it, it's species to species dependent um, because you've got typically um, when two things are, are mating, they each send out half their DNA code, right? Like random bits of, of half their DNA that mix with the other one. Um, and that's what a spore is. A spore is literally just a germ cell. A germ cell just means a reproductive cell. And that germ cell lands and it grows into that mat um, where it only has half the genetic information for a complete oh, organism. Yeah. So the, the, white, the white mycelium could just be half an organism. Yeah, some, yeah, like a lot of times. And then when you get the second spore that comes in and lands, forms a mat, they fuse together, swap mm. DNA, and then become one. Um, um and now they're a full organism capable of actual reproduction, which means that they can actually, uh, you know, produce the mushrooms. And so herisium a lot of times likes to, um, some recent studies have come out that show that uh, herisium is more aggressive and takes up more territory, has a better um, immune system when it's in the haploid state, the half state rather than the full state. And then, mm-hmm through some various bioprospecting means that a bunch of scientists have gone through and figured out that uh, herisium actually exists in fairly decent numbers in the wild, but it exists in the half state. And wow. then they're theorizing or hypothesizing, I guess I should say that um, it spends most of its life cycle in that half state and then finds a partner later in life and then, and then fruits. Ah, uh, I see. That's kind of like humans do, right? Right. There you go. <laughs> Some of us, I started early, so. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah, her, you know, I, that's pretty interesting to think. And then, um, so where where did your passion with all the mushrooms come from, do you think? Like, because uh, I could see the passion that you have about growing mushrooms and what you're doing. And like, what, what where, where did you find, like, what made you just really love it, you know? So I, I don't actually know the answer to that question. Um, I actually, I saw you ask um, two or three different people, you know, when I, when I told you whenever I watched a few episodes just to kind of prepare. Um, and I was like, I've got to have a good answer for that. And I, <laughs> I even last night I was thinking about it and I was like, dude, I should have a good answer for this. But I, I don't know. I don't really know. I know my grandmother got me all of um, Beatrix Potter books. You know, and you you sit there and you read the Beatrix Potter books and there's like mushrooms in every little corner. And I didn't know when I was a kid and reading it that she was a mycologist. Oh, you know, wow. that, yeah. Um, and then her children's books are just full of like the tale of Jeremy Fisher and Peter Cottontail and all those. Um, 
my parents uh, and grandparents used to tell us, you know, the little puffball mushrooms you find in the woods, don't touch those, you'll go blind. And so my brothers and cousins and stuff, we used to throw them at each other, hoping to make each other go blind. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I've just, my, my grandfather basically kept us, if we weren't on the lake, we were in the woods. Um, and, you know, fungus is just everywhere. It's, it's hard not to notice. And then mm. I've had just mushrooms have kind of followed me everywhere without me realizing it until I got mm. older and I was just like, Oh, this is kind of a weird thing. That's just followed me around. But <laughs> that's awesome. Where'd you grow up? You said you grew up in the country or yeah. Uh, Jefferson city, Tennessee. Oh, okay. um, that's about 30 minutes east of Knoxville. So okay. Knoxville being our biggest Metro, which to most people who've you know ever lived in a city, it's a, it's a small town really. But um, for me, Knoxville feels huge. And, um, yeah, we just, I just grew up roaming fields and canoeing everywhere and, you know, that's just, awesome. yeah. Yeah. I, that's, that's kind of the way I grew up. That was in Northern California though, but yeah. Oh, Jake, I love so it. that's beautiful countryside. Oh man. Yeah, totally. Like we were in the Sierra Nevada mountains for a while and my mm. mom lived up in Oregon. So I'd always drive up through Redding and, you know, weed and all that going up to, uh, to like Klamath Falls areas, but yeah, it was totally gorgeous. Like, oh man, that's yeah. that whole coastal highway is one of my favorite spots in the entire country. Just driving oh, from Northern California is just straight up to Washington Lake. Yeah, it's such oh, gorgeous. Yeah, totally. Um, well, cool, man. And then, um, so, so you just somehow just fell into it. Mushrooms were following you, kind of like I feel like they were doing the same thing to me, to be honest. Like. Sometimes I wonder, like, how did I get into this? You know, <laughs> I was like, I was in IT in the Navy. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> I, I, th I think the answer continues to be they choose us. <laughs> exactly. I think that's what happens. Like, I, it feels like they choose you, right? And somehow nope. you're just in it. And then you don't want to leave. Like, it's like you enjoy it, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's it's like uh, that great epic of our generation, Harry Potter, right? You get the letter. You don't uh, you don't go to Hogwarts when you want to. You get <laughs> yeah, chosen. Like <laughs> yeah, it is right. That's pretty much it. I like that. That's a great answer. And um, so, so did it start with Heristium or Oyster? Was Oysters a pretty common one to get into, right? Yeah, it was Oysters that I started with. Um, yeah. I had read somewhere. I think it was the Shroom Read. There, there wasn't a lot of help. Um, you had, uh, you know, you had some stuff from Roger Rabbit. Um, you had the Shroomery, but almost all of it was Cubensis based. There was very little people producing gourmet. There was a, um, uh, there was a DVD series that I remember that was published on YouTube. Let's Grow Mushrooms, I think it was called. Um, there was, uh, there was some guy I cannot remember his name or his channel. It doesn't exist anymore. He was growing oysters in his basement and then some Herisium in his basement. And then just one day that channel disappeared. But that channel, they would talk about some stuff, but I just, I would watch and be like, oh, look, that bag, that, he's got just the round bags instead of those square expensive bags. He's got this. Oh, he's got, you know, just trying mm -hmm. to pick up any, glean any information. Yeah. Um, and then the biggest help that really came to, to us was that, I mean, so we've started in a position of poverty. Like I had no money to throw towards anything. When we needed a, wa a refill, a water refill valve, we stole that from the downstairs toilet uh, you know, <laughs> to make a refill valve because we couldn't afford <laughs> a toilet refill valve from from Lowe's. 
Um, so what we did was we actually really looked a lot to the growers in like Southeast Asia, India, um, South America, where we could find that kind of stuff. People who were doing a lot with very yeah. little. I mean, I was watching these guys and I'm like, oh, I need a flow hood. And then I'm watching people produce clean work in a cardboard box in India, you know? <laughs> They, they've I got know, a car right? yeah they got a cardboard box a little flame and then they're sitting there, <laughs> in there and they're just working and then when i when i did finally go to college um tennessee decided they were going to start paying for it so we so i decided i was going to go for microbiology since i had the the interest and in, at the time actually it was an interest in ants but they didn't offer a program for ants at that school um and then i i go into school and we do microbiology and we're just doing an open air transfers um and I had a really, really good micro teacher. Um, and this little redneck guy who would do all of our prep work. So like you'd come in, you'd have all your dishes, your tools and et cetera. Mm. And everybody just kind of treated this redneck guy like he was nobody. Um, and then so, I, but I was saw how he was like sterilizing agar in the microwave and he was, you know, dish by dish and he was doing all this stuff. So I started talking to him, come to find out the guy had a higher education than our professor did <laughs> everybody everybody I just thought that. that he was some dumb that. redneck <laughs> but um he, he taught me quite a bit of stuff um about how to to produce work really like he's like yeah man people will get really over complicate this stuff you know um mm. and so that's that's really where i got a lot of inspiration for this stuff was like how do we do how do we grow a lot with very little um that's really the farmer way anyways the farmer way is you know, I'm not going to buy a brand new tractor. I'm going to fix the tractor, right? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to find some, some, I mean, redneck style way of fixing this stuff, but it's going to produce and it's going to produce a lot. Yeah, um, results, right? <clears throat> oh yeah. And so that's where we came up with like a lot of the stuff that we do is just very, we have a saying here. Um, sometimes Ben and I'll just look at each other if we're like really noodling on something and it'll be like, what's the best tech. And he's like, no tech. And he'll be like, I love that. What, what's the second best tech? And I'll be like technique. Right. So it's the best thing is no, if you can do it with no technology, do it with no technology. If you can do it by doing by changing your technique, change the technique. Technology wow. comes last, you know? So, and that's, wow. that's really what climbed us up out of poverty was that I was able to start mm -hmm. producing hundreds of pounds in a basement with very, very little expense actually being put into it. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. So can you share any like of like the processes at all that you that you develop to make that like work for you and your because everyone's in a different situation, right? You might be in this, but someone else might be in a whole nother part of the world in different scenario, right? Yeah. I mean, so one part was the, um, um, you know, the uh, dry bagging that we do, which actually ended up going to now the creation of the Thor bagger that man of war does. Um, but dry bagging, we, um, wasn't really created by us, but we really systematized it. Um, I saw people, a couple of people doing it in their kitchen where they're just like, you know, I'm going to add, uh, even Paul Stamos talks about it. I think in mushroom cultivators, you know, add grain, add water, cook. Um, and we're like, okay, well, what if you just do pellets and pellets and water? And there you go, you're done. And it's like, well, what about mixing it? You're not, your substrate's not mixed. And then we go, well, wait a minute. Well, you don't need to mix it. If you can just remove that process entirely, when you go to spawn it, you're going to mix the substrate up. 
So mm. by pre-mixing the sub and then mixing it again, you're just mixing it twice. So if we can just remove that whole chunk of the process, mm, okay. we've actually shortened the process, made it simpler, and made it a lot easier. So that, that kind of thing. And, and that way you don't have to bag wet substrate, which is a lot harder to bag. Ah, interesting. So, but isn't the, the sub, so the substrate wouldn't be wet then after you, I you, but I thought you put water and substrate together first, right? So wouldn't it be wet? Or no? Typically, yeah, people, typically people do, but what we would do is, I mean, we add the pellets to the bag first and then the water secondarily. I mean, now the bagger does it all at once. But oh, okay. it's it's um it's just an all in one process instead of having like a batch mixer, which batch batch mixers are, uh, you know, I think I called Pack recently after COVID, even their smallest unit without the bat the mushroom bagger addition is like five grand, you know, versus mm. a, a pellet a pelletized bagger that uh, excuse me that Manaward produces uh, has a base price of twenty two hundred, and. Mm that's because it's a lot easier to dump the pieces separate and it's easier to handle a pelletized product. So you're able to, to dump it all in a bag. You don't have to have the expensive ribbon mixer attachment for your bagger. You don't have to um, have any of that kind of stuff that adds that extra cost and complexity. Mm. <clears throat> so basically you found a way to, do it without following all the rules that people kind of had out there on the way they were doing it. And you kind of thought, well, how can I do this more affordably and still accomplish the same goal? Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, people had, um, I mean, it was common knowledge, you know, it was common because even I, um, I would take a tub and like a pitchfork and then put all my substrate in and my water in and then mix it up. And then I was handbagging and Ben came over and he's like, this is stupid. Why are you doing this? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. I wish I didn't have to do this because my shoulders hurt. And he's like, he's like, yeah, we can't do this like long term. Like long, like long term, we've got to find a solution to this. And most people's solution would be you handbag until you get thousands of dollars to get the, you know, the 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 ribbon mixer and the bagger. Um, and versus ours was like, well, we went from that to a pitcher with a mark on it scooping the pellets. Right. Mm. And the scooping the pellets was a lot easier on your shoulder and um, on your body than doing the wet substrate. Then that became, oh, well, this is an easier process to automate. And it was just one of those things where it's, it was common knowledge. Uh, you know, nobody really was like demanding that people do it that way necessarily. But um, everyone knew that you just did it that way. And it, uh, there's a there's a concept that I fell in love with um, called first principles thinking, which is just when you come across a situation, you try to wash all of your preconceived notions away and you try to look at what is there and what are you trying to accomplish? And you go, OK, what can I really do with what's there to get right here where I want to go? And it when you start really doing that, you end up coming up with some weird stuff. Um, you know, like some some weird things. <laughs> you know, yeah. the redneck way, right? That's right. Absolutely, <laughs> get it done. <laughs> That's absolutely right. <laughs> mm. And so it started with oysters, and then it kind of built from there, right? Now you do a variety <laughs> of mushrooms, right? Oh yeah, yeah, we do. We do a lot. Um, 
we also we we buy we have a bioprospecting program. So anytime I find anything that I think might be useful in the woods, I clone it. So I mean, we've got mm. wild reishis and turkey tails and um, xylarias, which are um, you know like dead man's fingers, that kind of stuff. Um, uh, wild anokis. I've got three or four wild anoki strains that I've collected. Um, you know, any anything that I can find that is either a potential ma- food, fiber, material, medicine, whatever. I I clone and I bank because um, wow. at this point we don't know. We don't even know what what's useful out there, so I'm just collecting everything. <laughs> but nice, nice. Um, but it means that we get how to many, grow. How many have you collected so far? Um, so we just did an inventory and an active liquid culture. So actively being grown in liquid culture. I don't know my count off the top of my head of everything I've got slanted um, and then cold storage, but. Uh, we have 292 strains in active liquid culture right now. Wow. And they're all different strains. They're all different strains. Yeah. Wow. Um, so, I mean, you know, now the vast majority of that is oysters because we have the bioprospecting program and the breeding program. So oh, yeah. I think about right now in, in that um, active liquid culture, we've got um, about half of those minus two are wild strains. And then the rest of that is all wild, uh, all uh, bread strains or uh, commercial strains that we curate. Ah, okay. So you're, you're, you're making your own strains. Like, um, cause I know like I'm really familiar more with the, you know, the Cabensis world. Cause a lot mm-hmm. of my team works in that genetic area, but yeah. I know a lot of times they, they'll crossbreed different strains of the cubes together to create a new one. Right. Is that oh, similar? Yeah. Is that similar to like what you're doing with like oysters and herisium? You're combining yep. like two different herisium varieties together. Oh yeah. Yep. That's um that started off with our oysters, but then I I actually tried to develop uh, or really just use my oyster protocol on the herisiums. I had to develop a completely different protocol because it just they don't breed quite the same way and it was easier to have results by just starting over. But um, we just actually had our first fruiting trials on herisium that we bred in house, um, which was a, a cross between lion's beard and um, bear's head. Is so, that the one you named after yourself? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I technically didn't name it. Um, I, I mean, I guess I, I selected the name, but yeah, the Mossy's it was a beard. Mane. It was named after your beard, right? Yeah, yeah, Mossy's mane. Somebody, somebody, Mossy's uh, mane. That's what it yeah. was. <laughs> somebody got on Instagram and they're like, "Dude, you got it like Mossy's mane," and I was like, "Shoot, that's a name. I like that. I'm gonna go with that." Um, but yeah, we we had three that came from that that were commercially interesting, and so we we've published those on the website. But um, it's exactly what the the Cubensis guys are doing. Um that's where I got a lot of like my inspiration for this is I was looking at at this and going just like back in the early weed days, it was the weed guys that were becoming the, the expert plant breeders. Right. Um, And just like you're seeing in mushrooms, you're seeing like the tat syndicate and a bunch of other guys that are really going through. And I mean, you've got cubensis that looks like pumpkins, some that are kind of so white that only the blue shows through. Right. And you yeah. have these beautiful blue mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the, somebody actually created something that looks like the woolly Neptune off of Bob's Burgers. Like, it's... 
it's uh-huh. amazing what they're creating, right? They look it, some of them are look like chocolate, like El Chaco, like it's all yeah. dark brown. It's like oh yeah, and then, and then you got and then you got stuff like Tidal Wave and Enigma and like some of the the mutants and like it's it's really cool to see where all that's going. And I was like, man, well that if there's that many phenotypes hidden behind that one toadstool looking mushroom, like we all thought it just looked like a toadstool. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, obviously not all of us, but but somebody went through and started reading that, and then they've they've shown us that the the phenotypes that exist, the the body compositions that exist, are just innumerable, and so it's I wanted to to see if we could do some of the same thing with oysters. So I, I my first breeding uh, cross that I did, I did between a snow oyster, uh, North Forest snow, excuse me again, and um, Lambert's one two three blue. And I just wanted to see if you took a white oyster and a blue oyster and crossed them together. I thought if I see a various patterns of blues, then I've proven that those two crossed, right? Because I, I didn't even know, like, how do you know when you put spores together, how do you even really know that you got the right spores together, right? How do you know you got the right parents together? And I was like, okay, well, if I see pick something visual like that, then, and that was our first, um, our first cross. And that ended up yielding a, a bunch of really cool strains. Um, and like a whole, just like some electric blues and cobalts and like really dark blues and everything else. And so that's when I was like, man, I'm going to collect as much genetics as I can. I'm going to dig deep. I want to want to see what's really there. So we've we've bred a lot of stuff from oysters with really fat, delectable stems to to stuff that's got. Um, oh, my gosh. Like, you know, they'll cup like chanterelles or something like that. Um, we've got mm-hmm. some that have scalloped edges. We call it the super scallop. It looks like a clam. It's got those wow. big lobes on it, you know, when it grows. And That's awesome. I love this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's cool. like the cube world, but in gourmet, it's freaking awesome. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But see, there was just a few years ago when you didn't have that many people selling at the farmers markets, there wasn't really a market to sell this many different strains because when you're going to a restaurant or wholesalers, wholesalers were really the, the big choice back when I first started. <coughs> you didn't have, they didn't, they wanted one mushroom and they wanted 2000 pounds of it. And they mm-hmm. wanted it to be, they wanted that the first mushroom to be exactly like the last mushroom they got, uh-huh. you know? And so, but then when we started getting on these farmers markets growers, I was like, dude, this is where we get, cause like if I can grow 10 different types of oysters and oysters are easy to grow, but mm-hmm. someone comes to my table and it looks like I have 10 radically different things. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to sell more. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so you get some that look like clams and some that look like coral. And then you start getting, you know, you start working into different various shades of colors. And and then it just, next thing you know, man, I'm starting to become obsessive about this. <laughs> so, <laughs> mm, Yeah. So how did the money come in initially? Because you, you initially started growing some mushrooms at home. And then um, did you just try to go out and sell them to a restaurant? Or like, how did you start it out? <clears throat> Um, at first I just started kind of telling people, you know, I'm growing some mushrooms at home and the next thing you know, they're like, Oh, well, can I get some? I was like, well, uh, yeah, I can start selling some to you. And then I had people go, man, you know, there's a farmer's market right down the road. So we started mm. the Dan- the dangerous farmer's market <coughs> and my wife and I went there and started trying to sell. And we were like, man, we're, we're not in this to be greedy. We're going to sell oyster mushrooms for $4 a pound. Right, which is ridiculously cheap. <laughs> um, but we're like, we, we don't need to be greedy, you know, that we can afford this. But nobody would buy the mushrooms. Um, and so 
man, I was, I was about to give up. It was week after week of just like people coming and looking at our table and just going on. And then the next thing, you know, um, somebody was talking to me about like, yeah, you know, typically if you price things higher, people want to buy it for some reason. I was, I was like, you know what? I was like, screw it. $20 a pound. Um, and the next thing you know, our table's selling out every single time. Oh my gosh. Wow. And, I, and I'm like, I was trying to basically give these things away to you. I know. Yeah. Um, oh, but that, that farmer, that farmer's market was the first. And then um, what I liked about farmer's markets is that chefs come to farmer's markets. Other, other market managers come to other markets. Oh, and, as you're, especially back then as a mushroom grower, there were very few or almost no other mushroom growers in the area. We had um, one other mushroom grower in this area named Hugh Brewer, who actually ended up becoming like a really close friend and mentor of mine. Um, he'd been doing it since, I don't know, man, 70s or 80s. Um, and, you know, we, that other than just us two, there, there weren't really a whole lot of people here. So when somebody came to the market and saw mushrooms, they were all about it and they wanted to like, okay, Hey, can you come to the Knoxville market? Can you come to the Maribel market? Can you come to do this? And I'm just like, man, I've got myself and my wife and we can split up, but that's it. Like we don't mm -hmm. have any other ways to go. So yeah. we basically shopped markets for a while, found the ones we liked, which ended up being the, the, the downtown market in Knoxville. Um, Cause even though Knoxville's only got about a hundred thousand people in it, um, it would really attract the Saturdays would really attract the surrounding areas. So you might have 30,000 people come through this market. Wow. Um, yeah, it's huge. Like they had, they had people sitting there counting, you know, in one day and like in one day and one day. Wow. Um, and I mean, it, it's, it's just so I've had people come from like New York and other big cities and go, man, Knoxville has got a weird food scene. It's got a food <laughs> scene like New York's got, you know, I mean, maybe, wow. maybe not quite that, you know, but it's, it's just like, it, we have a weirdly part of it's that we've got a resort here called Blackberry resort. Um, and Blackberry is where, like, I think Miranda Lambert, the country singer, got married there. A lot of famous people go there and stay. It's a really, really pricey place. Um, when we deliver there, we're not even on the property. You know what I mean? Like, they've got uh, you, they've got a fence, and they've got a gate that straddles the fence, and you put stuff in one side, and it goes in the other. You don't step foot on the property. Um, uh, but they pay really, really well. They purchase a lot. But mm -hmm. more importantly they train chefs that are from this area. And when those chefs go there, work there for a few years and then leave, they're Blackberry trained. And so the next thing you know, Knoxville and Maryville is filling up with these, like all of these really highly trained chefs in, in our area. So, you know, as far as like small towns go, I have an advantage that a lot of people don't just right. with, with that. But the markets, the food scene became really, really big. And then that's where we got our first restaurants was at the downtown market. Chefs started coming and being like, Hey, if you can buy, bring cases with you to market, we'll send somebody to pick them up. And then we started delivering. And then uh, next thing you know, my restaurants ate up my supply to the point that I had to, I had to leave the markets and travel, you know, up in the, the commercial space to the, to the restaurant level. Um, I see. Yeah. And then after we started the YouTube channel, of course, I moved up into the supplier space. So, I mean, Fresh Mushrooms was how I got to where I'm going. Um, mm -hmm. But, I mean, I think, you know, 85 to 90% of our income now is, is through the supply side. Wow. That's pretty cool. So, you just started with the farmer's market. 
And was there, other than changing the price point, you know, up to $20 a pound from like $4 a pound, mm-hmm. like, was there anything else that you, you would say helped you become, to get to that level in the eyes of the, the restaurants? Was it maybe the quality of the mushrooms? Like once they got them, they were better? Or was it the yeah, brand yeah. maybe? Like, what do you think helped you to get to that level you're at now? Our branding sucked back then. Um, <laughs> and it's it's no fault of Samantha. Samantha's actually really excellent at that kind of stuff. I just constantly starve her of funds to do the branding because uh, I'm always investing in equipment and, and things like that. But um then really what it came down to was the quality of mushrooms. In in the early days, it was not hard to beat the distributors. Mm. And that's who you had to beat. So, um, but we started learning a bunch of little techniques. Like we use foggers instead of high pressure missing systems or anything else because it leaves the mushrooms a lot drier. And mm. our chefs are constantly talking about when they get mushrooms, like, oh man, your mushrooms last so long. Your mushrooms are dry in the box. They don't condensate. They don't... Um, so it's that that was a big thing for us is that um, you know the type of fogger we used helped helped uh, increase the longevity and the, the chefs really liked that um, the quality of mushrooms we we would get because we would really force a lot of fresh air through our rooms meant that we get a lot more cap to stem ratio which is uh-huh. more use, usable material um, then when we started the breeding program we started um, I would grow out the oysters sell the test oysters to the chefs get their feedback from it and then go, Oh, okay. These guys like, they like these fatter oysters with the, with the stems that are mm. the same texture from the edge of the cap all the way down. So why don't we do a lot more of that, you know? And then uh, it's just became kind of chasing, chasing what the chefs wanted really. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> I like that. So the mushrooms you were producing were probably looked bigger <clears throat> and they stayed fresher longer oh, yeah. because of the way that they were grown. And you said a fogger instead of a mister. Um, what what exactly does that mean? So we use um, the ultrasonic foggers. So a lot of times, like, you know, if you're you're sick, you get um, a little sonic humidifier from, like, Walgreens or something to put in your room to make you feel better. Um, that okay. mist is a really dry and gentle mist. You know, it's not, okay. it's not overly saturated. What we like about it is that the particular the uh, the sonic humidifiers vibrate at such a frequency that the micron level um, of the water droplets is actually so small the mushrooms can uptake it directly. Wow. It, it doesn't have to evaporate first. So most humidification wow. works like, you know, if you're, let's say, like you go in and you, you spray your mushroom room down with water. Mm-hmm. Um that is not really what the, the mushrooms are going off of. What they're going off of is after the water has evaporated, uh, it is now small enough that the, the uh, mushrooms can uptake that. Um, mm. But if you can get it to where the humidity that you're producing is already a droplet size that can be taken up. It's also, when it's that small a droplet size, it's got more surface area, which means it evaporates into the air faster, raising your relative humidity um, mm. much more quickly. So we actually do a a dry spell and a wet spell um, on our humidistat. We we do um, our low end is set at sixty five percent relative humidity, and our high end is set at like ninety five. Okay. And what that does is it just oscillates all day, every day. This uh, big drop and this and what I'm trying to do is just what's in nature. You know, after a rainstorm comes through, the wind comes through, starts drying everything out till 
the next, you know, round of moisture comes through. And so that allows us to pin, um, pin mushrooms in the same room that we're, we're harvesting mushrooms in. We don't have to change anything or, um, and it keeps the mushrooms drier where we don't have bacterial infections or, you know, contaminants. Yeah. Yeah. Over humid or over probably the wrong amount of humidity. Yep. Yeah. Too much, too much humidity is always, if you've got blotch problems, it's almost always too much humidity. Um, when people hire me for consults now, if they go, Hey, I'm having blotch problems. Like in the first 15 minutes, I'll be like, your, your humidity is too high. You know, <laughs> that's it. Like, I, I can solve that problem in 15 minutes. Let's just go ahead and say your humidity is too high. Uh, or maybe your humidity is not too high. Maybe it's not spiking too high, but you need to drop that low end down. Cause like mm-hmm. some people will run ranges 90 to 95%. And when you do that and it's that socked in with fog, you're running yeah. the risk. You're providing a lot of moisture bug. A lot of insects need moisture to breed. Uh, so you're talking fruit fly habitat and that kind of thing. Bacteria yeah. absolutely needs moisture. When you walk into my grow room, my floors are dry. Even if my humidity is at 95%, my floors are absolutely dry. Um, and that's uh-huh. what I like about those sonic humidifiers is I can really, I can really pinpoint where I want my humidity to be. Interesting, huh? I might have to look into that. I had a, I made a humidifier off of a tech I seen online. With, you know, you probably seen it, those black totes with yeah. the yellow top and it has those discs on it. And I put yep. that thing in there and then it creates fog. Is that, is that the right thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's the sonic humidifiers. Oh, good, good. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Versus like a, typically the other style would be like a pressure misting system. You have low pressure misting systems, high pressure misting systems. Mm. Um, I don't like low pressure misting systems most of the time because they, they just have a constant drip. Like they'll just drip, drip, drip when they're not on But the high pressure misting systems. They can achieve the, the um, small micron level that we want to get with the sonic humidifiers, but they Mm -hmm. require pumps and plumbing and all that kind of stuff. And for me, it's a Mm -hmm. lot easier for a beginner person in particular, but even for me, someone who's not a, I'm not, a construction person or building person at all. Like I can grow anything you put my hands on, but if you want me to build uh, like even a a box, it's going to be the worst box you've ever seen, (laughs) but I can put PVC together and basically vent my humidity wherever I want. And it's a lot easier to vent that humidity laden air than it is to plumb in something for a beginner. I see. Now if if I, so if I was trying to achieve 90 to 95% humidity on the high end, and 65 on the low end so i could set it like how would you even set that up because it's like you'd have to say you'd have to have a something smart that says hey yeah yeah you have a a, every hour pump it up to 95 but don't let it go below 65 or something right yeah you just get like a i I think i'm um i don't remember where i got mine but if you just get a cheap humidistat and you can plug your humidifier right into that and it's got a sensor that you can take to the center of your room um, and that is, that's probably the easiest way to do it. I think I paid 12 bucks for my humidistat and it came with the <laughs> sensor. Um, I think mine came from house of hydro. Um, I'm sure you can buy them on Amazon. Um, but thankfully it's not too, too smart. Cause you just say, you know, you just plug in high 95, low of 65. And oh. what I'll say is that if some days like, you know, East Tennessee, sometimes it's just really pouring down rain all day, every day. You know, I think we're about two inches short where I live of being a temperate rainforest. So, you know, like on days when it's really raining hard, my humidifier might not kick on at all. Um, 
and I just leave the humidistat as is. I don't really mess with it a lo- whole lot um, uh, unless I actually see like dry damage being done or I see water consistently on the floor, that kind of thing. Then I'll kind of either bump up my low end or, or lower my high end of, depending on what I'm seeing. Uh, I see. Yeah, I've noticed that too, like trying to grow mushrooms when the weather's changing. We were always wondering about that because every time the weather changed, we're like, my mushrooms aren't growing. It seemed like there was this link between what's going on outside with what's going on inside. It was interesting. Even if you have like, I swear if you had a hermetically sealed environment, they would know still. I don't know how they know. (laughs) They they just know. Because whatever every time a thunderstorm comes through, they absolutely they'll Mike. I'll have walls and walls of mushrooms, and then you oh, know wow. when it when it's bone dry outside. Even if I'm pumping fog into that room, um, it's it's definitely you know like they'll they'll just be real miserly about producing mushrooms for me. So I, mm. I don't know how they know. I wish I did. Interesting. Like, so what if it's hot outside? Like my it's been like 110 degrees here in Texas, like the last few weeks it's been crazy so what would my mushrooms think about that would they like try to not grow or would they grow Uh, i mean it would really depend so like i've got strains that don't seem like they ever they're not affected by the temperature outside whatsoever and i've got Mm -hmm. some strains that are really really sensitive um and even if my grow room is reading 65 degrees but it's it's 100 degrees outside those mushrooms still won't produce like kings i have a really hard time with kings unless Mm -hmm. i can get them really chilled but it's it's again it's almost like begrudging it's almost like i'm forcing them to fruit more than i'm actually encouraging them to fruit so <laughs> it's so it's it's we just grow a lot with the seasons um at this point like i I know the time of year when it's coming you know i'll start planting certain strains at certain times and and just running with that so wow. summertime we summertime we have our lowest diversity um and we'll go down to the few strains that really produce well in the, the summertime heat. And then when wintertime comes, I can basically grow anything I want. You know, I can grow even tropicals in the wintertime here. What are your thoughts on the mushrooms that don't like you've got like over 200, almost 300 strains, right? In your inventory. Yep. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, how many of those strains do you think you're able to grow indoors? Cause I know a lot of mushrooms, no matter how hard you try, they just, you got to grow them outdoors, you know, like chaga for example. But so all of those strains uh, are in active liquid culture and are all strains that can be grown indoors. Um, like actually fruited indoors or just the mycelium indoors? Be, be fruited indoors. Yeah. Holy mackerel. Really? Yeah. There. So we, we probably have, um, like I have, like I was saying, the guy that that was just active liquid culture. I've got a lot of stuff that's slanted in cold storage, uh, um, that is stuff that is just being banked, and I I don't actually have a count on all of that stuff right now because I got to pull it all out of cold storage and recount it all. Um, but like there, I've got like stuff that's like morels, chanterelles, um, mycorrhizal mushrooms. I have um mycorrhizae that i've pulled out of soil samples from like healthy forest biomes and things like that that i've stored so a lot of this stuff is 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 stuff that could not be fruited indoors or if i could find a way to fruit indoors you know i'd probably spend more money fruiting it indoors than i would ever make selling it um uh, that kind of you know, kind of like with the the morels the morels it's not that you can't grow morels indoors it's that you know you end up spending more money 
prepping the stuff, <laughs> trying to get it to grow than what you're going to get back. Um, but then, um, yeah, as far as like mycorrhizal species that need, um, you know, like I've got a, a chaga, spe- I've got chaga, two or three mm-hmm. versions of that. Um, they absolutely, you know, that's not going to grow in fruit indoors. That needs a tree host. So there, yeah. there's that kind of stuff. Um, I've got some corn smut samples uh, that would need obviously a cornfield to, to fruit properly because it needs it needs that the the actual corn to be able to to hijack the corn's reproductive system to produce itself. So, um, what one? What was that called? Corn smut. Corn smut. Yep. I think is that the gray looking one that looks like corn on it. Yeah, it's so you have like corn and it's got these big, wicked looking blo- like gray blobs. That's like a gourmet thing in like yeah. South America, right? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 delicious. Um, yeah, I I, I can re- I know like I can see the word in my mind, but I have no idea how to pronounce it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a like in Mexico when I lived in Mexico, it, it was a it was, it was a delicacy. People loved it. Like it yeah, was yeah. it was a blessing when it happened to your crop, right? But in America. We actually started doing some corn smut projects um, back in the day. Um, it was called Project Corn Smut, and other various people were doing different projects. And we actually ran into some trouble where people, farmers, were really unhappy about us growing corn in the region where they were growing corn because we were purposely <laughs> we were purposely infecting ours with yeah. Well, we were purposely infecting ours with with um, a contaminant to them. To um, them, it was a contaminant. And they're like, what are you doing? You're breeding a contaminant right in the middle uh-huh. of, you know. Oh, yeah. But but to us, it was like, no, it's this is a delicious thing that's actually worth yeah. far more than the corn is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but again, it's a, it's a perspective thing. America America has been a fungophobic culture for a while. Um, and it, it's, it's taken time for us to become lovers of mushrooms. So. Yeah, exactly. So, um... <clears throat> Interesting, huh? So you started out um, just kind of discovering mushrooms, found your way into the restaurant area, and now you've got a whole mycology network, like, you know, a genetics department in your company where you're Mm -hmm. creating new strains all the time. Um, And then you also provide a lot of coaching. And um, I seen on your site, you offer like if someone wants to come out and visit you and actually work on the farm with you. You actually allow people to do that, right? Oh yeah, yeah. We call it it's it's our mentorship program, um, and we absolutely have people come in for a week and we do a basic crash course. But because a basic crash course is not going to be enough, like people, what we actually find is that people come in and they're overwhelmed by day two. You know, it's it's because <laughs> well, I mean, it's yeah. How do you learn how to run a mushroom farm and every aspect of it in five days? It's it's it's, it's a hard task. So. Uh. What we did then was we we made a Discord server called the Mossback Syndicate. Um, Mossback being what people from this area used to be called, so we just call ourselves Mossbacks. But um, the um, uh, the Mossback Syndicate we do is like full of former students, Patreons who who support us on Patreon, our patrons that support us on Patreon, uh, people that hire me for consults, that kind of stuff, and we get as many of these people in as possible different skill levels. I mean, I love it because we've got HVAC guys, we've got plant geneticists in there. We've got people from every walk of life and everybody can help each other, but they also like I do, I make sure that there's weekly time that people have access to me every Monday night, you know, that kind of thing. And so 
what we do is a mentorship program. People come work the farm. They come right beside us. They do, you know, my, even my, my kids help teach. Um, and, um, well, that's actually really cool. We've had two or three people go, man, like, oh man, if, if your 16 year old can do this, that makes me feel a lot better. <laughs> like I can do this. Like a six, like a 16 year old and a 13 year old are helping teach me how to run Thor. Like I can run Thor. Yeah. <laughs> like, and that's so, awesome. um, and my, my, they know how to do production lab work, uh, um, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's, um, we get people in, we, we teach them the basics. We send them home with a little packet full of our recipes and stuff. Mm. bring them into the discord and then we just make that part of the process. Like I know that after you leave, you know, my mentorship program, there's going to be a few weeks, maybe a few months while you're building your op where you're going to need a lot more handholding. Right. Yeah, but yeah. then there's going to reach a point where you're experienced enough that you're now one of the people passing on experience in the discord. And wow. we've been at this for about three years and now we've developed a nice like tiered system of people people that started with me four years ago that are now helping teach how to build HRVs, you know, the people that are like, it's, it's, it's become quite the good community. Like, um, and that's what I like about our mentorship program is I've, I've heard from some other people that some mentorship programs they'll go to, they'll go for the week, get the crash course and then bam, they're out the door and they don't get much more help. And that's, that's something we really mm -hmm. wanted to make sure is that we are there for the next year. You know, we're there to, to make sure that we're, we're you're hired us to help you make you successful. That's what we're going to do. Awesome. Awesome. That's so cool. You're doing that. And then the people, what, when people come through and, and take you and do the mentoring, <clears throat> most of them, they're looking to what start their own farms. Some are, um, well, I've actually had uh, three or four hobbyists come through, um, who just wanted to get better at being hobbyists. Um, and I was like, dude, there's probably cheaper ways to do that. But but they <laughs> thankfully, thankfully they wanted to go with me. And that's, you know, that's actually I'm a little weird. I feel like in that I actively sometimes try to talk people out of mentorships. You know, I, I'm like, dude, you got to if you haven't watched every single one of my videos, don't do the mentorship. Go get all that free mm -hmm. content first. Get the free mm -hmm. stuff first. Um, yeah, you've got tons of content on your YouTube channel, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping to produce a lot more. So, <laughs> um, oh, great, great. I, I've been real slow about it over the past year, but I've had some, some health issues that, um, I'm only recently really getting to where I I'm, I'm back, like back in fighting shape again. And mm. so uh, we're hoping to like, I'm all of this. I just rolled a rack in to kind of hide the mess behind me, but like <laughs> we're, we're redoing the studio. Like I've actually got a, a nice large studio space we're going to be working with. Oh, um, nice. We're going to be bringing back the live show as well. Um, and then, cool. yeah, I mean, hopefully just having the studio space is where I can just sit down, record a video, throw, you know, edit it, throw some B-roll together. It means I'll have a whole lot more. But, mm -hmm. um, <coughs> excuse me. But as far as, um, yeah, the, 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 the mentorship stuff goes, um, or actually, no, I'm sorry, man. I, I totally had a brain fart there. I apologize. Where I was no, going you're good. Yeah, we were talking about the mentor, and then we kind of talked about the channel because you had so much That's on there to go to the channel first, right? Before oh, they right, do right. the mentoring, because all that content's already there. Yeah, there's so much to learn right there if you just want a hobby, right? Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah, so. You were asking about the types of the people, like people wanting to start their own farms. Um, that is most of it. I will say, I think about half of half of what we're doing now is gourmet people coming in wanting to start gourmet farms. And the other close to half is probably people coming in to do psilocybin farms. Um, oh. <laughs> because 
the techniques are all the same. You know, if you if you learn the the techniques, the production methods, etc., it's all the mm -hmm. same, and it translates right over to the the active side. So, okay. um, we get a lot of like, there's a lot of people I think who are seeing the way things are going because it's psilocybin's really tracking with weed, the way yeah. we did back in the day, and. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people see that. So we're starting to get people who are like, man, I want to know the techniques now. I want to learn the stuff. I want to practice it before it blows up. And, you know, I want to be yeah. ready to, to jump in when it starts going legal. Yeah. Yeah. So <clears throat> that's good to know. And because you're right, like when it comes to mushrooms, right? Once you learn how to grow a mushroom, you can kind of branch out from there, right? And go in a bunch of different directions. Cause we kind of go the opposite direction. Most people come into us starting with, well, not really the opposite. You're getting the same thing, but we'll get people come in for that, you know, that cubensis stuff. And then we try to educate them on all the other varieties, you know, like, cause once you get good at this, there's so much more you can do, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why like when people come and do the mentorship, They'll be like, oh, man, I just left. And, and at home, we noticed that um, there were two other mushroom growers at the farmer's market where we're planning on selling. And I'm like, good. And they're like, what? The the competition? I'm like, no, you man, you don't understand. Like, people are growing oysters. People are growing the same five types of mushrooms. Mm -hmm. You know, like, the, the world of mushrooms is as complex and varied as the world of vegetables. You don't see the tomato farmer getting mad that there's a broccoli farmer next to him. <laughs> right. Like so like if we get that. into it where we're like, you're growing 10 different types of oysters and these guys get are coming it? in and yeah. they're doing shiitake. And then yeah, you get you then you, the guy, the way I feel about it. So like even us, we've been backing out of the easier to grow mushrooms out mm. of Knoxville. And I've got two students in Knoxville. Um, the biggest one right now is ET fun guy. Um, shout out to Josiah. But he has been growing his business to the point now that he he's just now got his first warehouse space. Mm. Um, and he's doing a build out on that. And he has really been exploding. And people are like, well, how do you feel about Josiah eating all your stuff? I'm like, I'm, he, he's not. I'm, I'm actually falling back and receding and giving him space to grow uh. because I've moved up into harder to grow, more expensive mushrooms. Um. I, I don't have to make as many sales. Um, mm. and I've got an experience level of a few more years over Josiah. So it makes a lot more sense to me that, yeah, why don't I that direction? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that way, you know, I'm giving him space. Like there's, there's plenty of space. Like when you see somebody, like if you've been growing oysters in, um, your area yeah. for five years and then someone moves in and they're starting to grow some stuff like, man, why not, why not move to chestnuts, Anoki Kings or something like that? Like, don't yeah. just get, don't just get comfortable and stay at oysters. If you're going to do that, then someone is going to come eat your lunch. You know, but if you're willing to adapt and grow and, and expand your skill, then you're going to be able to grow more and more expensive things as you go on. I mean, like, so oysters, we sell for $90 a 10 pound case. Um, chestnuts, we sell for $120 a 10 pound case. Okay. So if I move to chestnuts, then all of a sudden, you know, I grow, I have to grow fewer cases mm -hmm. to make the same profit margin. It's actually a better yeah. deal for me. And then mm -hmm. I'm out of the oyster business and I've given, I've given so-and-so that, that oyster side. So, um, um, and when it comes to that, you know, if I'm still growing oysters and they're like, if they need chestnuts, sometimes they'll come buy chestnuts from, from me. And like, you know, you start, it actually ends up working out a lot better. My, the worst time I've had growing was when I was the only grower in town. 
you know, when, when my, my mentor, Hugh Brewer stopped growing mushrooms cause he just, you know, he aged out and I was alone. I didn't have anyone to rely on when there was a mistake. I couldn't go buy mushrooms from anyone. I couldn't go buy spawn mm -hmm. from anyone. I didn't have anyone to cover me. Now I've got Josiah. One time I, you know, I had a, a spawn line go down on my old road and I really needed that old road for an order called Josiah up, man. He had some old road spawn, thankfully, you know, so I was able to get that mm -hmm. coming in and like, it's just, I love that. it works so much better to have that network and to make room for each other and to stop looking at it as, as being so highly competitive. No, I love that so much because that's like a lot of what we, we tell our community is it's about the community, right? And one thing I love so much about the Myco community and even the new people coming into the Myco community is they're so like, everyone wants to like help each other out. Like, like you just said, mm -hmm. it's not always about this competitive nature that most of us have with everything we do. It's like people, I see it all the time. One dude was like, Hey, I don't have an agar dish. Cause I work with a lot of people on low income. Right. Yeah. And yeah. another guy in our community just said, Hey, give me your address. I'll ship you some. No, no cost. You know, it's just like yep. wanting to help. And it, it always inspires me, you know, when I see stuff like that in the community. Yeah, I absolutely love it. And I'll, I'll be really frank here. Like it was not that way when I started, when I started, um, I actually got a lot of advice from some people that turned out to be just the exact opposite. Like, and, and, and so much, so much so that it had to have been intentional, you know, wow. that, that they were giving me bad advice. Um, it, it, people, you'd go to somebody and you'd be like talking mushrooms and you'd be excited and they would look at you like, Hey man, back off. And if you start asking know. questions, eventually they, you know, they'd almost always come to the same answer of like, dude, I paid blood, sweat and tears for this information. Why would I give it to you? Wow. You know, that kind of stuff. And like, yeah. what's cool is with the advent of the internet, and the open source ethic yeah, you're, yeah. you've seen a lot of those people get weeded out. Those people have gotten shunned to the corners. I'm sure they still exist, but they're yeah. not making, they're not making moves and waves the way the people in the networks are. A network is stronger than an individual node. And yeah. that's what we're yeah. seeing is that as people get together and grow together, where those people are becoming better at a faster pace than the people who have locked themselves out. Absolutely, man. Totally. And I just had, I was at an event in LA here last week and then we, it was a conference and we, the conference. Yeah. I had some, awesome. some guys stop in last night that were there last week. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. That was a great time. And the biggest takeaway at that conference, right. was like, it was community. Cause mm -hmm. even when I was there just being around people who were like me and wanted to help like me, it was like, it was healing me. Like I could see, like they were just, you know what I mean? This like this non-communicative communication, right? Like oh, yeah. non-verbal communication that's happening in the community. And I just, I don't know. It was just, it's, those, it's really those, incredible. Those guys who stopped ended up staying, we ended up staying on the front porch till two o'clock in the morning. So <laughs> oh, wow. it, I, I get it, man. It was just like, you get, you know, you get thirsty for it and then you start, you start feeling it. Like, you man, you just, you can't, yeah, you can't drink yeah. it in enough. Yeah, it is. It's really, I feel blessed to be a part of it all of it, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. <It's> pretty cool. <laughs> I'm, I'm really lucky, man. I, I came in at a weird time. I've got some sort of weird, like people look at me as, as if I've got some sort of authority in the mushroom world or some sort of like, <laughs> which I, I feel is completely unearned, but then I'm, I'm assured <laughs> from other people that, you know, I've done the work, but at the same time, it's, um, it's really nice to just be able like 
I don't know, man. Like, I, I'm, I'm really excited. We're going to the Georgia Mushroom Festival this October. Um, okay. And it's one of the first times I'm going to get to go to the, the festival. Um, like, in a long, long time. And just that, that like, that sense of community. I, I love it. Like, I do love the warehouse because I get people to come to me. I don't have to go places a lot of time right, to get right. that sense. But it's just so much cooler to be able to go to these events and see um see that community and drink it in the way you were able to last week so i'm looking forward to getting to do it some myself uh in, a, in about a month or so yeah yeah that <laughs> we started planning out the next event now we're like dude because once we realized how powerful it was to be around a community because you know let's face it i work alone a lot like i'm yep. at home a lot and i'm around my family and i'm not around my community as often anymore the wizard in his now. tower what's that i said the wizard in his tower yeah, you know, and but when I went out and I got out of my house and I got into the community around other people, it was so amazing. And oh, I'm yeah. like, dude, we got to do this more, right? And so like, I'm on the same page. Like, it's events are are important, man. Like every couple months, it like recharges you or something, you know? Oh yeah. <laughs> every couple of months, I think would be a good timeline. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool, man. Um, shoot, we're we're already kind of on over on time now but um man it was a great talk and so much great information that you're sharing i'm i'm thankful to you for everything you know that you're doing out there in the community you're helping so many other people with everything you're doing so thank you for that um is there anything like any last words or anything you'd like to share like well what before we do that like where where are you going where do you see mossy creek going now like what's what's the plan for the future sure so Right now, what we really want to see is an extension of um, bioprospecting, like across the board. And I want to see the cool thing about mushrooms is that we can go somewhere and take a tiny little piece of tissue and store that and grow millions and millions and millions of pounds of mushrooms off that. Right. And so, mm. but you're also seeing housing development happening at a, I mean, like, what did we see through COVID with all this ha housing development, just whole, I have whole biomes in my hometown that are just gone. I, I, you know, I just drove by and was like, Oh, that has been logged and like graded and already apartments built, you know, that whole kind of thing. And it's like, what kind of genetics existed there that might've been helpful? You know, what kind of, mm. what kind of stuff may have been there that, um, that would have been helpful in, in our fight with climate change or disease or even, you know, just with, uh, food production. And, <clears throat> One of the things I'd like to see, especially is of old growth forest. Like we, we here have about uh, 45 minutes away, an old growth, one of the last few hardwood old growth forests um, left east of the Mississippi. I want to go bioprospect that area so bad. Stuff that's been, who knows, been sitting there for 400 years undisturbed. Wow. Right. And if I can get a little piece of tissue and bring that back and bank that, then that, who knows what that might do or be useful in the community yeah. later. Um, sure. So I would like to see that kind of thing happen a lot more. I want to see Mossy Creek become um, a, a genetics archive. Like I would I really want to start building. And I mean, we've already begun the work, but I'd really like to see that explode to where we're building a larger and larger archive of like food, fiber, you know, fuel, medicinals, you know, that whole thing. And mm -hmm. um, of even just biodiversity itself. And um then, of course, the breeding program. Like, I, I really want to see Mossy Creek become much more and more and more the genetics company rather than um, the farm necessarily or anything else. Like, I, oh, okay, yeah, the 
so you asked about mushrooms and like when I got into mushrooms early on in the conversation, um, I've always been interesting with breeding stuff since I was a kid. I mean, when I was a kid, my mom gave me a patch to grow flowers in and I used to, you know, breed those flowers and cross those flowers. Even now, you know, the peppers and tomatoes we grow here at home are usually varieties that we've bred. Um, mm -hmm. we've got rabbits that we breed and quail and, um, you know, we just, just, I've done that since when I was a kid, I had colonies of roly polies, <laughs> uh, little, little isopods <laughs> that, that I would, I would, I would I put all, all the lavender ones in one tank of blue ones in the other tank, white ones. Mm -hmm. And so and like, I would, I would eventually have these little colonies where it was all certain colors. I bred spiders when I was a kid, <laughs> like oh, all that wow. kind of stuff. So the, the selective breeding, the genetic side of thing, that's just, that's the part that's probably interested me the mm. most that's probably the thing i can point to and be like that's the thing that i've been that's been gripping me since i was a kid so just to see mm. a huge diversity of organisms is, is exciting so okay so you're gonna move more in that direction then going forward are you planning to like what's the goal like what are you trying to accomplish are you going to educate people on how to do that or are you going to yeah yeah we're gonna so i've built a little right now i'm working on it. we built we've got an rv so we're going to start doing a little bit more traveling, um, uh, doing some bioprospecting and, and whatnot. And, you know, when I go to like a festival, like let's say I go to Georgia Mushroom Festival, I've built a little nomad laboratory <laughs> that I've got, um, okay. a little pop-up lab where I'll be able to go while I'm there. If I find mushrooms, I'll be able to pop up my lab, clone that stuff, mail it back to the shop and have um, um, cool. somebody, you know, put that in cold storage. Um, if I run out of plates or supplies, they'll be able to mail me that stuff back, you know, back out wherever I'm at. Um, and of course, you know, we'll be in and out a lot, uh, with the shop with that, but we'll, we'll have is a constant collection of, of new genetic material coming in. And then because we've got such large growth space from being a farm, we can test that material and we can go through and start doing larger scale testing. Uh, we're also in, in the works of building a network of, testers strain testers so like we've got the first one i'm building right now you know where we've got like someone in florida someone in massachusetts and someone in the pacific northwest and someone in the southwest and then someone in the central states and then we'll what we'll do is send, we're sending a strain to them once every month or so for them uh -huh. to test collect data on and send that back to us and then we'll we'll have multiple as we grow. We're hoping to have multiple networks of these people growing and testing strains and shipping them back to us and getting data for us. That way we can do uh, data collection over a wide range of conditions. Um, what are they then, testing for? Like, it, what exactly does the test test for? So it'll it'll depend on exactly uh, whatever strain we're working with. So, you know, right now, like let's say if we're doing. A, uh, an oyster strain you might be just testing mainly for colonization speed temperature uh, that you grew it at the weight that it produced its biological efficiency etc cetera, etc cetera, right uh, so that's the kind of the standard stuff for oysters or hey man i got this oyster and i tried it and every single one of them blotched you know that would be an interesting data point uh, um but then if you're moving towards stuff like reishi then everybody tests this reishi strain and then we send in samples to have them go through a mass spectrometer um, and we start testing for different like levels of, I was talking to someone last night who's really interested in testing for beta glucans and stuff like that. Like, and, and reishi is full of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay. Now we're talking like 
you start testing for the active compounds in this, or like if we do cordyceps, um, you know, you can test for certain levels of cordyceprin. And then Mm -hmm. at some point you start plugging in all this data and going, okay, we had a nice massive spike of cordyceprin production right here. Why Uh, can we find the pattern? Can we find, is it the genetics? Is it the, is it mm. the genetics met met a good environment for it? Now we know a lot more. And then as the archivist, we'll have the data that people can go through uh, okay. published as well as the strain that could be purchased from the library. Oh, wow. So you by doing this type of work, you'll be able to create genetics that, you know, no one's ever really seen before and, and yeah, be able that's to hope. work with that stuff. That's absolutely the hope. Um, you have so like uh, I just had someone send me um, a wild blue oyster from Austria, um, mm. and we grew it out, and it is the absolute darkest blue oyster mushroom I've ever seen. Um, it its stem is the worst texture I've ever come across, though. So it's not really a commercially <laughs> viable thing, but uh-huh. that genetics is there for the blue. Uh-huh. If I add that, like right now we've got um, our beach oyster, which has almost no stem. And I'm crossing that one with that Austrian blue. Okay. So that's a, a native European oyster being crossed with a native American mushroom, North American mushroom. Right. Um, that would not happen in nature, but we're because we're able to get this stuff into the archive and then start <laughs> mixing it. We're able to start combining interesting traits and hopefully mm. seeing some brand new things that, that like you said, don't exist yet. Um, and oh. then, as this goes on, it's going to get weirder and weirder and weirder. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Because we're only scratching the surface, I think, on what, what we can do with these things, it seems like. Yeah, well, so what's interesting to me is that selective breeding, um, what the idea of, of true like scientific selective breeding is a couple hundred years old or so. Um, you, we got to see a nice explosion of it with the uh, cabbage families from the, the Germanic countries. Like, so, you know, you got broccoli and uh, cabbage and Brussels sprouts and um, mustard greens and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and we're seeing selective breeding with a bunch of other things like dogs and et cetera. But it's not been applied widely, I, I don't feel like, um, especially uh-huh. like any sort of pheno hunting. It's been uh, land race selection and that kind of thing where it's, it's just mm. stuff that happened to be grouped together and the genetics kind of stabilized mm-hmm. um but the between genetic engineering um which i think we should be really really careful with but between genetic engineering um and then just the widespread application of selective breeding to mushrooms i think we're going to see some really really interesting things i mean it'll mm-hmm. be kind of like well, taking an oyster mushroom and having as many different varieties that are widely different from each other as you have like cabbages or, you know, tomatoes or whatever. We, we had a guy on our team. Um, well, it was a college kid that we met and he was friends with someone on our team and, or whatever. But anyway, our genetics department, they got, this kid was able to cross a cube strain with a non-cube strain and it was an adolensis and it was like the first time anyone's ever been able to accomplish that and actually successfully do it and um what are your thoughts on stuff like that like being able to crossbreed something that's not hericium with hericium is that potentially something that can be done well he so he still was working in the same genus right because like uh you said it was natalensis 
Yeah, that's 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 still a psilocybin, right? That's that's psilocybin natalensis. Yeah, yeah. Instead okay. of psilocybin cubensis, it's psilocybin natalensis. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So so those were still at least in the same genus, and that okay, um, that I can kind of speak to in that the the uh, mossy's mane that we were talking about a minute ago. Yeah. Um, what's interesting about that is I crossed lion's beard, which is a lion's mane strain, a Herisium arenaceus, with. Mm. Um, a what was called bear's head and sold to me as Herisium Americanum. Oh, so you okay? And these two crossed, and like I, I, I made sure to really watch, you know, for the clamp connections and and the cross sections and whatnot. Yeah, and yeah. I'm convinced that that these two bred together, um, because I'm seeing traits of both in the children, um. Okay. What I don't know is, was I sold a Herisium Americanum that is really a uh, bear's head? Uh, it's I called see. bear's head, but is it actually a lion's mane? Or uh, okay, or is it, so did I really breed two lion's mane strains together, or did I breed two things from the same uh, genus, but two species together? And that I've got to get DNA testing done for. Oh, okay, um, so you can test for that. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can test... Um, you can, you can go get a DNA bar. bar thankfully, it's just DNA barcoding even at that point, which is um, a lot easier than going through like paternity testing or something like that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the cool thing is I can do the DNA barcoding and then test the children to see if they have combined traits, mm-hmm. you know. Um, <clears throat> and we'll see if it's two separate species or that the bear's head that's being sold commonly as a, a bear's head mushroom is actually a lion's mane, but the, it's kind of like a, the elm oyster is not really yeah. an, an elm oyster. It's a, <laughs> it's it's a, oyster. yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pleurotus ostriatus that's sold as a uh, hip zygous, but it's not really a hip zygous. It's, it's right. It's right. Um, it, looks, now, it looks somewhat similar so that people can like kind of call it that, right? It's kind of right, like yeah. Natalensis. Natalensis looks like a Cubensis, right? Exactly. And that's, and that's what it was, is that someone either found or bred this Elm Oyster strain and was like, oh, this is a commercial oyster, but it looks a lot like the Elm Oyster. So I'm going to name it after that. And then there was a lot of confusion on, oh, no, this is a true um, Elm. And it's like, no, it's, uh, it's not no, a true Elm. Um, but what, what your fellow was doing there is really interesting to me. And there are people that work on hybridization techniques. Um, Mm -hmm. And it comes down to basically something to delaminate the cell walls so that the genetic material kind of just spills out and some form of shock um, to it. So it could be chemical or thermal or, um, well, those are the two main ones I'm familiar with. But basically the mycelium then just starts regrowing and trying to relaminate the shells, you know, the shell of its cell wall um, back together. And it's just kind of picking up fragments of anything. And it's like, maybe this will help. Right. And um, at that point you're hoping that, yeah, you got horizontal gene transfer and a true hybrid of two completely different mushrooms. And there are people I know that are working on that. Um, trying to combine like pink and blue oyster, you know, that kind of thing. Again, that's still, that's still the same genus. Um, but that's what it sounds like your your fellow was able to do. Now, if he did a, an actual breeding set, like a breeding cross rather than a hybridization method like that. I think um, it was a hybridization method, like what you're saying. Okay. I've never uh, seen him do it, but that's what it sure. sounded like. Uh, and that it might be, but there are also large questions in the scientific world about 
is the taxonomic situation the 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 species naming situation in mushrooms as clean as we think it is and historically mm. it has not been no. um, historically no. it's been a nightmare um <laughs> But the good news is with all this DNA testing that people like Alan Rockefeller are doing and William Biddy Brown and Doma and, oh my gosh, the, uh, Josh yeah. McGinnis, McGinnis from um, um, Everyman Bio. Like all of these guys are really working on like with iNaturalist and everything else to, to really get the species down. And mm -hmm. I think I you're going to see a lot of this work come to fruition over the next five to 10 years where we're, we're going to have a much cleaner picture of yeah. where things are. Yeah. But, yeah, I guess you're right. And then what you're doing, you're kind of leading the way with it. You know, you're going to be you're, you're like kind of cleaning up the species that, you know, that's being distributed so that now people can have a clean, trusted sample knowing what they're getting is actually what they're getting. You know what I mean? Because like you said, it's you never know, like, especially right. in the census world, you go on Reddit and you're like, Hey bro, you got, some, you got some spores out there. Oh, <laughs> I'll, yeah, send yeah. You some, or I'll send you some LC, you know, and how do you really know? Right. How do you, how, <laughs> how do you know? You don't, you won't know until you, you, uh, you, what is it? Uh, trust, but verify. Right. So trust yeah. him, but then go, go verify it later. <laughs> so, exactly. um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's basically what we're trying to do is, is like, we want to have that archive. Eventually I want to have everything in my collection, uh, at least DNA barcoded, but eventually I'd like to have a, a full rundown of uh, its genetics, like have the whole thing sequenced every single strain. Um, yeah. We're a long way from that. I'm a long way from doing the actual barcoding and, um, and sequencing work, but we are really getting into the breeding and at least archiving work. So, um, you know, we're getting our cold storage equipment in, very soon so our liquid nitrogen uh storage systems and um where we'll be able to actually you know flash freeze our samples and keep them good for 50 years or more rather than having to constantly go through and and you know when you refrigerate slants you have to you have to go through and, and really re-up those every year or two otherwise they they uh, kind of stall out and go bad so uh, yeah. yeah but so you uh keep them back and making sure they don't you don't lose them Right, and that's a lot of work. So it's actually yeah. cheaper just to do uh, cryogenic freezing <laughs> than it is uh, than it is to pay someone to go through and constantly re up these slants. Uh, so if you do that, what'd you call it? Cryochronic, cryogenic, cryogenic. So if you do cryogenic freezing, that'll last a lot longer than a couple years. Oh yeah, yeah, that'll last a, a long, long time. Oh wow! Cool. Actually, there was um, there was a big thing that just happened at a university where this woman, um, a professor had been doing research work for 30 years, I think like that, something like that, where she had been taking samples and had them cryogenically frozen at her university. And mm. everyone was on vacation except this janitor. And this janitor heard this beeping noise and went and unplugged something to stop the beeping. Oh, and no. it killed 30 years oh, of research. Oh my gosh. Millions oh, wow. of dollars worth of samples all destroyed. So, oh no. Yeah. But I mean, but the, those samples had been sitting there for 30 years. I mean, so that, that kind of wow. gives you an idea of how yeah, long. That gives you yeah. So then is your site going to turn more into like, um, like a spore work style with a lot of like LC syringes and different varieties? You know, do you see your site having more liquid culture for sale in the future? 
So that, that I'm not entirely sure. I'm, I'm not sold. Um, I think liquid culture is probably the easiest for people to get in hand and use mm-hmm. right away. Right. Because I mean, the nice thing about having 10 milliliters of LC is that what I suggest people do anytime they buy from me is you get it, put a few drops on two or three dishes, put, mm-hmm. um, you know, two or three milliliters in some more liquid culture and then take the rest of that and dump it in a bag of grain, you know, mm-hmm. and now you've got three different methods with which it's growing. If one of those fails, you've got the other two. If two of them fail, you've got the yeah. other one, you yeah. know, that kind of thing. And if all three fail, you need to call me because something went wrong. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, liquid culture is the easiest to, to disseminate that way, but it's not the easiest on my end. Uh, uh, something I'm finding is that it's actually really quite easy to get overwhelmed when you have almost 300 cultures in an active culture. You can't uh, stir uh, enough. Um, you know, it, you, you can't um, a stir enough. You can't, um, refresh the cultures as often as you would quite like. So, yeah. um, you know, that kind of thing, it becomes, it, you have to end up like basically running your liquid culture. Um, and like, if you have a whole jar, you may not use that whole jar before you've got like, Oh shoot, that thing has been sitting for a little bit. I gotta, I gotta restart the whole cell line again. So it's, uh, mm. I don't know if, if it's going to be better to sell slants in the future or dishes or, or what um okay. i've looked at some of the larger companies um like aloha medicinals has been around for a very long time um and they're they're a good culture bank for, for, with some interesting strains um and they you know they sell i think typically in in plates um but it's it's one of those things i haven't quite figured out yet i haven't figured out what's going to be the end use form because a lot of people don't know how to use slants um you know they don't know how to take from slants and, and whatnot so what about what are your thoughts on this? Well, I guess you got to go with LC, right? You couldn't do spores because spores are too unreliable, right? Well, spores, um, they, they can be unreliable. I mean, you, I'm pretty good at taking clean spore prints these days since I do so much of it. Um, but the, the real difference there is that when you go from spores, you're not actually getting the strain that you've ordered. Now, it's actually really interesting right, in that right. if, you, if you want a lot of diversity. Um, it's interesting to get like if, if I was traveling somewhere um, internationally, then I would absolutely like take a postcard and spore print that postcard, put it in an envelope and send it to myself, you know, and that way when I get it home, I'll put that on agar and I'll have a lot of strains that are fairly genetically diverse. Wait, what did you just say? You said you put spores on a postcard. Like, what did you mean? Yeah. Like I would just like, if I was traveling, like let's say I was in the UK somewhere. Right. Um, and it's a lot harder to ship. Like I'm not, I don't have a lab available to me, you know, or right, something like right. that. then yeah, I would just buy a postcard somewhere and then spore print that and then <laughs> throw it in an envelope and mail it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's um, awesome. <laughs> I, like love that's, that. uh, I knew a guy who traveled with his Bible and he would spore print his, the pages in his Bible and then take them home and swab them. Oh, you know, that wow. Kind of that's a yeah. cool idea. I'm going to start doing that. I never even thought of that. That's genius. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a great way to do it. Like, and you know, if you're trying to travel, uh, with something that's, um, well, not necessarily the most legal thing in the world, you know, like, <laughs> let's, say, let's say you go to Mexico and you want to cross back across the border. It's a lot easier just to spore print the wild things you're finding down yeah, there and then yeah. bring them back. And that's completely legal, you know, mm-hmm. versus because you can transport the spores all you want, but you can't transport the tissue. Yeah. So Ooh, for, for, for microscopy, of course. No, for the land race strains, right, <laughs> that we come across in our travels. You know, right. That's a really cool thing. Absolutely. 
Well, cool, cool. So, um, well, that's a lot of cool things that you got going on. I mean, I can't wait to see what happens. And then if people want to follow you or they want to get more involved maybe with some of the genetic stuff or the farms mm -hmm. and stuff that you got going on, where's the best way for them to do that? Where should they go? Uh, so, yeah, our, our website's bossycreekmushrooms.com. Um, we also have an Instagram, Mossy Creek Mushrooms, the, the YouTube channel. The YouTube channel is not a good way to get a hold of me, but uh, it's a good way to at least um, get a lot of free information. If you want to get a hold of me, usually the contact us form. Um, but I mean, also Mossy Creek Mushrooms at gmail.com is still the email I use, even though we have more professional email <laughs> these days. Um, that's the one that I use the most. So uh, that's usually a, a pretty good direct line to get a hold of me. I do always tell people, like, just recognize it. Like, we're a very small company. And like you said, we're doing a lot. So if people try to contact me, if it's not an emergency, usually it takes me two to three days before I might get back to you. But. Yeah, likewise, likewise. I'm the same exact way. Yeah, totally. Yeah, man, I, it's a lot. It's a well, it's a it's a huge um, industry that's growing, and there's yeah. so few of us. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yep. It's amazing how much stuff there is to do in a day, and then it's like how much time you got. You're like. <laughs> And the days go by so fast now, it seems like. <laughs> oh, absolutely. absolutely. And and part of the reason I got into this was so that I could stop working the 80-hour weeks and spend time with my, <laughs> my family. And I know, uh, you know, you you being a family man yourself, you know, yeah. like, you got to take time eventually and, and put that into the kids. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard to find the balance, right? It's well, like the, it, one of the things I've struggled with the most. Yeah, I mean, hence, hence my health problems, man. Like, um, when COVID hit, I stopped lifting weights. I stopped training for the Highland games. I just start. we, we basically, so we signed the key, we got the keys and signed the paperwork for the warehouse the day before the lockdowns happened. So mm. we lost all of our restaurants like overnight, right? Right at the wow. time that we got the warehouse and started building it out. So instead of using our full budget to build out the space age facility, like we wanted to, we just built a redneck op and like, <laughs> like you know, the whole talk before, but the um, it, it became this whole thing where um, we really ended up having to operate on a, a real shoestring budget. So I didn't hire people to do stuff. I did it myself or with Ben um, and Samantha, my wife, and we ate out all the time. And the next thing you know, over three years, man, my health had declined. I'd gained a ton of weight. My blood pressure was soaring. The stress had been getting to me because I wasn't taking time off. Um, yeah, and yeah. that that ended up putting me in the hospital. And so it's taken me about wow. a year to get back to, to get my health back. But I've been I have been um, only spending maybe about a third of my time actively working on the op while Samantha has been handling most of it while I just get my health back under control. Awesome. So, thank yeah, thank, yeah, right. I'm really thankful to have a partner who's able to just yeah. grind it out like that. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, like, you know, 30 pounds down and blood pressure back under control and no medications other than a um, aspirin a day kind of thing. So what happened? Did you just crashed and you went to the hospital and found? Yeah, out man. I, I started having um, feeling like somebody was standing on my chest. Oh, you know. And I'm thinking heart attack because yeah, my my yeah. dad my dad had his first heart attack at 37. My grandfather had his at 36. Um, my dad's first open heart surgery was 39. Um, mm. and both of them are very healthy people and I was not in healthy shape at this point. Um, yeah, no, yeah. so I'm thinking, I'm thinking heart attack. I get there. It's not a heart attack. It was just my blood pressure. Um, the doctor had said that she had not, had not seen someone so 
obviously should be stroking out, but not stroking out. Like my blood pressure was so high um, and my blood was extremely thick is what they said. So that's why um, they've got me on that aspirin a day is to thin my blood. Um, but they put me on blood pressure medication for about three months. And I told them I'm, 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 I don't like this. I can't walk up a hill without feeling like um, I'm going to die. So I was like, how am I ever going to get back off the medication if I'm not able to lift weights or run or do anything? Right, so right. Um, I took myself off the medication and then bought a sauna and started hitting that sauna every night. Um, started eating home-cooked meals nice. and then started lifting weights to the point that I could feel the blood pressure spike and then I would stop. And then I just, okay. for a year, I, I did all of that and that's what got it back under control to the point now where... You know, I'm training for the Highland Games again. I'm hoping to compete again. <laughs> so, what's the, what's the Highland Games? You know, it's like the Scottish strongman games. Like you go throw the big telephone. Oh, oh that would be cool. You, yeah, oh, yeah. I can totally see you doing that. <laughs> oh, I, I, I used to. I used to uh, have a lot of. Oh, yeah. Uh, I never oh, did yeah. the. I never did the caber toss. I'm. I'm. Uh, the caber toss is that big pole. Like I, I'm more of like a yeah. shot put, uh, hammer throw kind of guy. So. Oh wow! But, so when's that one gonna be? The Highland Games. Well, they, they have a, one in the fall and one in the spring here. Um, but the May one, I think, is the big one. But I, I won't be competing in that one for – it it'll be at least a year before I'm Another year? competition. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'll have to come watch it. That's I'm, Heck yeah, that man. That's a cool thing to see. I've never been to one in person, but it's – Oh, yeah, cool. man, dude. It's, it's super fun. The food. The food is where it's at. Like, you compete, and then you just go gorge yourself oh, on beer. Wow. That would be Beer awesome. and haggis and stuff. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, cool, man. Um, so any any last words for anybody, like maybe anyone who's looking into get into genetics or maybe even into mushroom farming, like um, any last words before we head out? Yeah, um, I guess my biggest thing would be just, uh, you know, watch for burnout, protect yourself against burnout. It's easy. Mm. If you're like me, it's easy to become obsessed. Yeah. Um, and then it's easy to lose track of, of like we talked about health or family or things like that. And so, mm-hmm. um, that's really like, I, I hate to kind of end on a tale of caution almost, but it's like, uh, I've seen it a lot having taught people for years now, mm-hmm. burnout is the number one farm killer I've seen. It's not making wow. money. It's not the work itself. It's people throwing themselves into the work and not making sure they spend time yeah. with family, friends, and taking care yeah. of themselves. Oh, man, 100%. 100%. Like, getting in the game is one thing. You got to learn. Right. You got to do that stuff. But that's the starting point right. of a whole new world, right, where we're completely consumed. Oh, yeah. And- it's, it's, okay to, it's okay to grind. It's okay to push but recognize that those should be temporary things. You shouldn't mm-hmm. be grinding and pushing for an entire year or two. You should be, mm-hmm. you should be stopping and taking time and take time reason. for yourself and your yep. family. Right. Like it's so easy to forget our families. And, Absolutely. And I'm, I'm going through the same thing. That's why I'm saying it. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, I've been so busy for months and I, I reached a burnout too. And I was at the event and I was really emotional and I didn't know what was going on with me. And, yeah, it's yeah. weird how it hits you, man. It's like a wall of emotion. Yeah, and you, 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 you get you get leaky. I call I called it leaky. Like yeah, I'm le- yeah, leaky, that's what and I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, what the hell is wrong with me? Why am I so leaky? Yeah, I'm like, what is going on right now? <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's because you're you're not getting enough human connection, man. That's that's yeah. what it is. Is like, yeah. you know, even this, like, I mean, you know, I, I feel a really good connection with you right now. I really like this, but 
but there's still a certain amount of on that I'm having to be that you're probably having to be, right. you know, because yeah. it's a work thing, but it is. Yeah. But at the same time, like last night, these guys came in, like I said, from, from the, the event and they've been traveling. Like they just, they drove up to New York and then came down from New York and, and stayed with me for till two in the morning. But mm -hmm. what was interesting is you got all these mushroom guys in the same room. And what did we talk about? Not mushrooms. <laughs> like we talked about, you know, we, 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 I mean, we did talk about mushrooms for the first hour or two, but then it became, <laughs> it became the emotional state. It became the, mm. how do you guard it? Like, it's so funny to yeah, see yeah. everyone who gets into this business. There's so much work to do Yeah, that it's, it's hard to remember that it's not all up to you. Sometimes you can yeah. take it, you can take it a little easy and spend that time with your family. Oh man. That's probably the best advice you could give anyone right there. Well, thank you. <laughs> awesome it's way hard, to end. hard earned. <laughs> awesome way to end, man. Well, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Andrew, man, I know you're busy. You got a ton of things going on, probably just like me. And so, um, yeah. So other than that, we'll just head out. We'll close out here. And uh, again, thanks for being here. And I can't wait to see what um, you got going on in the future. Absolutely, man. Keep spawning culture. All right, see you later, thanks. All right, so if you wanna know how curative mushrooms is helping sad people to improve their mental health by growing happy mushrooms at home using an all-in-one simple growing system that doesn't require any complicated instructions or expensive equipment, then head over to curativemushrooms.com.